Would you look to Romans chapter 8 this morning? That's where we'll be. My dad would occasionally in winter set up a card table in the living room and he'd build a puzzle. And he was an excellent puzzle builder. But my dad always had a process. He would first find all the edge pieces, and then he would sort all the other pieces by color and assign each color to a section of the table or an adjacent coffee table. He then positioned the box top so that he could refer to it constantly as he was building the puzzle. And all this would take time. And I would grow impatient and start putting pieces together myself long before he was ready. But not him. He always stuck to the plan. Only when he had everything set up the way he wanted it, all the pieces where he planned, then he would start building the puzzle. And when he did, he would build it in record speed. Think of the letter to the Romans as a 433-piece puzzle and the individual verses as pieces. If we were to assign them a section of the table, we might divide them up into doctrines, say, like justification and sanctification and ecclesiology and soteriology and theology proper, and then we might put them all together. But what would we do if we had no box top with a picture of what the puzzle was supposed to look like? Even my dad would have had a tough time building a puzzle without any idea of what it was supposed to look like when it was done. He referred to the picture frequently to figure out how the pieces fit together. Well, today's passage is like the picture on the top of the box of the puzzle that is Romans. It reveals to us what God's masterwork is going to look like when it's all done. Without it, we're likely to try to force pieces together that don't really fit. Unfortunately, many people come to this section and they skip right over it. This is, in some ways, the highlight of the book. But they scan the book the way I would scan the table covered with puzzle pieces, looking for verses that fit into an arrangement they already have in mind. They look for commands about how to live, and they don't find any in this section. They look for support for their theories about how justification works or spiritual formation, and they don't find it here, and so they quickly move on. But this passage is enormously important for anyone who wants to see how Romans fits together. It's the box top, the picture of what it looks like when God is done. And it's helpful for us to refer to it constantly as we're reading this letter. So let me read our passage today. I'm going to read verses 18 through 22. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation. Uh, waits in eager expectations, one word in Greek. And it's made up of a root and a prefix that means to stretch the head. It's like somebody who's stretching like this to see something coming. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now, we mustn't forget when we read this passage what's gone just before it. Paul has just linked present sufferings with future glory. Verse 17, 
Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Suffering and glory are two pieces of the puzzle of Romans. But when we see them, it's hard to figure out how they fit together. One is dark as night. The other is bright as day. They don't even look like they belong in the same puzzle. But Paul sets them together. In fact, they're interlocking pieces. No suffering, no glory. That's what he says in verse 17. No suffering, no glory. But if suffering and glory are inseparable, and scripture teaches that they are, they are also incomparable in the sense that there is no comparison between them. Paul says, in my translation here, I worked it out and concluded that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy of comparison with the impending glory that will be revealed unto us. Not worthy of comparison. The word worthy comes in Greek from a root that has the idea of bringing a pair of scales into balance. It's not possible, Paul says, to bring the suffering of the present time, that is this time of suffering, into balance with the glory that's coming. They don't compare. It's like trying to balance feathers with gold bars. And remember who's writing this. This is a man who knew suffering, physical, social, and emotional, and he knew it from the inside. He was rejected by his friends, beaten by his enemies, suffered grinding poverty, physical disability, emotional turbulence. He says of himself and his fellow apostles, we've become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. He was doubted by his presence colleagues. He was shouted down by his former ones, but he worked it out and found that the present sufferings can't compare to the future glory. Still, you can't separate glory from suffering and still have heaven any more than you can separate hydrogen from oxygen and still have water. At least you can't do it yet. But that's because we live in the overlap period. Suffering belongs to the present, verse 18, or as the Greek has it, the now time. Suffering belongs to the now time, but it doesn't belong to the future. The overlap period isn't going to go on forever. Suffering is temporary, but glory is eternal. Because of Adam's rebellion, and his sin was a rebellion, this is the time of suffering, not of glory. Remember Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of, or lack, that's the way that word is almost always translated, all have sinned and lack the glory of God. We were made for God's glory to be part of it, to relish it, to bear it. But we lost it in the rebellion. In this present time of suffering, we can hardly believe the fact that we were made for glory. God's glory. The Messiah's glory. But that's true. We who belong to Christ are destined to receive a crown of glory. That's 1 Peter 5, 4. 
to bear an eternal weight of glory, 2 Corinthians 4.17, to be transformed from glory into glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18, to share in Christ's glory, 2 Thessalonians 2.14, and on and on and on. No wonder in chapter 5, Paul says, we hope in the glory of God. We're destined for it. Say it with me. I am destined for glory. I am destined for glory. Now try saying that when the toddlers are tearing the house apart. And the baby's throwing up and the collection agency is on the phone for the third time that morning. Try saying, I am destined for glory when the doctor sets you up for chemo. When your spouse leaves you, when your best friend lies to you, or your teacher humiliates you in front of the entire class. Try saying it when your promotion is denied for the third time. When your car breaks down and the temptation to go back to your addiction is unbearable. Try saying it when you don't feel like getting out of bed ever again. But you're going to have to learn to say it at such times because we are living in such times in the overlap. And even though the car breaks down and the doctor orders chemo and school's a nightmare, You are destined for glory if you belong to Christ. You are made to share his glory, to share his rule, and to shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father. That's what you're destined for. Occasionally I'll hear someone say, hey, it's all good. Almost always when it's not. You noticed? It's all good. Do you know what? It isn't. Not by a long shot. But it will be. If you forget that, if you forget that God has made you for glory, the trials of the overlap period will eat you alive. So don't forget. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. But there's even more to this picture. It's true. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. They don't compare, but they do contribute to it. For our light affliction, Paul tells the Corinthians, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. God will use the suffering that we're in right now to make us capable of accommodating more glory than we could ever otherwise hold. We can use the suffering for that purpose if we will stubbornly trust God through it. That's the condition. Will you trust God in the thing you're going through? Will you not give up on him? Do you ever feel like you're the only one who has it so bad? It isn't so. Not only do your neighbors and friends and coworkers and family members experience the pain of suffering in the overlap time, creation itself shares in the suffering right along with us. Worse than that, it shares in the suffering because of us. But it will also share in the glory. 
That's what Paul says in verses 20 through 22. Verse 20, for the creation. He's talking about the planet and all the living things that share it with us. The creation was subjected to frustration. The word translated frustration is the same word that's translated in the Greek version of the Old Testament as futility or vanity. It's the word you find in Ecclesiastes so many times you lose count. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's just futile. The idea is creation has lost its purpose. Creation's like a church I once saw in northern Minnesota. It was made for a purpose. It was made to be a place where people encountered God, a place filled with the glory of the Lord. But when I last saw that church, it had been turned into an antique shop. It wasn't fulfilling the purpose for which it was made. And neither is creation. Paul says creation was subjected to or forced into futility, not by its own volition, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Readers have wondered forever just who Paul had in mind. Was it Adam who subjected creation to futility through his rebellion? Was it Satan who subjected creation to futility through temptation? I think the answer is neither. The one who subjected the creation to futility was God. When he made us the pinnacle, in a sense, of creation, he inextricably linked creation's welfare to ours. If humanity succeeds, creation flourishes. If humanity falls, creation gets hurt. And of course, humanity fell, and creation broke all its bones. The reason I say it was God who subjected creation to futility is found in the two words Paul adds next. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. In his rebellion, Adam was not hopeful for creation. He didn't think of it. And in his temptation, Satan was not hopeful for creation. I doubt he can stand it. But God was hopeful. Let me read this again, this time my translation. For the creation was subjugated to futility, not of its own volition, but through the agency of the one who subjected it upon the hope that even creation herself will be freed from corruption and slavery into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When God linked creation's welfare to ours, he didn't make a mistake. When he subjected creation to frustration and futility, it was in the hope of creation's glorious liberation. See, God had a plan, and he sticks to his plans. He so thoroughly entangled creation with humanity that human sin meant creation's corruption and decay, but also that human redemption means creation's freedom and glory. Creation will be liberated from its bondage, literally its slavery, to decay. Right now, creation is enslaved in an endless cycle of conception, birth, and growth, which is beautiful, followed by decline, decay, and death, which is hideous. There's beauty, sometimes breathtaking beauty. But there's also disaster, sometimes heartbreaking disaster. 
But God has always planned to free creation. What that will entail, we can hardly begin to imagine. No more decay, no more death. Creation taking on hitherto unknown beauty and purpose and glory. If you think creation is beautiful now, just wait. The liberation is, verse 21, into the glorious freedom of the children of God, or more literally, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation is going to be let out of prison. And then life in this world is going to get really interesting. Jesus spoke of it as the new birth of creation. That's Matthew 19, 28, which the NIV translates as the renewal of all things. But the Greek is palingensia, the again birth. Peter called it the restoration of all things. He spoke of it in terms of the new heaven and the new earth. Our, and there are lots of other verses like that. We'll go over them and go deep on Wednesday night. Come. Our planet will again be a temple. And the psalmist's hope will finally be realized. The glory of the Lord will fill the whole earth. Paul says creation groans for this. It can't wait for the discomfort to be over and the rebirth about which Jesus spoke to come. You see, creation is pregnant. Creation's a pregnant mom in her ninth month during the hottest summer in history. She can't wait for delivery. And neither can we. And what awaits us is worth waiting for. That's the point of verse 22. But we'll have to wait for that until next week when we come to one of the great verses in the scriptures. For we know that all things work together for good for them that love God, for them that are the called according to his purpose. We can draw some conclusions, though, from here, from this high point of the letter. First, it's sometimes suggested that because Christ has already come and died for us, we should not experience suffering. Not if we're real Christians. Not if we have faith. That kind of teaching has led some people even to deny their sufferings because they consider suffering to be unchristian or a sign of sin. This passage puts that argument to rest. In this time, in the overlap period, God's people still suffer, sometimes painfully, sometimes horribly. Christ did not come, as George MacDonald once wisely said, that men might not suffer, but that their sufferings might be like his. That is, their sufferings might mean something. They might count. They might make a difference. A difference to whom? Well, first of all, to God. When we continue to trust him, even in suffering, we magnify his goodness and we glorify his name in a way that surpasses almost everything else. Secondly, it makes a difference to the people around us. 
If your trust fails every time you suffer, if you fall apart, if you lose hope and enter doubt and despair, what do you think that does to the people around you? To your spouse, to your kids, your brothers and sisters, your neighbors and your church. God has you right where you need to be to make a difference in the world. And one way of doing that is to suffer without giving up hope or losing your confidence in our Heavenly Father. When suffering comes to you, and it will. Years ago, I realized that when I'm preaching, I'm preaching to people, it's like everybody has a toothache. They can feel the pain all the time. And as soon as they stop thinking about one thing, they feel that pain. When suffering comes to you, and it will, say to your neighbors, say to your family, say to your friends, come and see how a Christian suffers. See how a Christian dies. See how a Christian trusts his Heavenly Father. If you do that, you will change the world. The way you suffer makes a difference to God. It makes a difference to the people around you. And it also makes a difference to you. If you will endure suffering with confidence in God, you will prepare yourself to receive more glory than you could otherwise bear. Everyone in the age to come will have as much glory as he or she can bear, but some through patient endurance and suffering will be able to bear more. Remember our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Expect it. Long for it. Wait for it in hope. There's a cemetery next to an Episcopal church in rural Louisiana where an old woman lies buried. According to her instructions, there's only one word on her tombstone. Waiting. Waiting. That sister got it right. For Christ's people, what's coming is worth waiting for. Let's pray. Oh God, what can we do but bless your name, who in your wisdom and unfailing love have made us to share your glory, and who in the person of your Son has shared our sufferings. Lord, we have no words to describe it. But we have this word. Thank you. Amen. We're going to stand and sing, and as we do, you are helping us with communion. Would you come to the front, please? Let's stand.